0: and welcome to Hyperfixations, the podcast where we invite various interesting people on to talk about their niche interests that they could just talk forever about. Here, are your hosts. I'm Ali. And I'm Nigel. And today we have Owen oh Owen, how are you?
1: I'm good this morning. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing good, thank you. Good, um, yeah.
2: It's very cold where I am. I'm in Romania. <laughs>
0: uh, tell us what you're here to talk about today.
1: Um, I think I might be here to talk about two things. Um, uh, building oh. control is is one of my big obsessions these days. Uh, but uh, I also, at the end of last year, published a book about Bussaris. Uh, and I can definitely spend inordinate amounts of time boring people senseless talking about the bus station. So uh, happy to talk about either or both, whichever uh, numbs your brain more.
2: Hmm. Perfect. Does... Yeah, does building control factor into cuz I haven't actually gotten around to reading um, your new one. I re- I re- I read Defects but does building control factor into what you find interesting about Bussaris?
1: No, no, they're they're, they're two completely separate issues. Um, I mean building defects obviously is is And building control is obviously all of the rules about how we make sure the buildings that we build are built properly. Um, Actually, one of the interesting things about Bosaris, it's almost 70 years old, uh, is is it was built to an exceptionally high standard um, and has managed to weather uh, a a very long and often uh, abused uh, poor maintenance. So it's it's, it's a very well-built building, uh, unlike many of the Celtic Tiger developments we talk about in defects.
2: Yeah, okay, what, is there any reason specifically that Bussaris was uh, built to such a high standard? Was it just that it was a, a transport hub, maybe, or...?
1: Yeah, so B- B- Bussaris really is is a very unusual building in, in the sense that you need to think back in Ireland in the middle of the 1940s. Um, uh, we were just out of the emergency in the south, the economy was in very poor shape. It was a relatively new uh, democratic government, um, and, and money was very scarce. And yet, despite that, you had a coming together, both of a government minister, Sean Lamas, uh, uh, the head of the newly amalgamated uh, transport company, CIE, a guy called Percy Reynolds, and this incredibly talented uh, avant-garde modernist architect, Michael Scott, who wanted not only to build a, a kind of a very utilitarian uh, uh, bus station, because at that point, our grandparents didn't actually have a bus station. They used to have to queue in, in the rain on the quays for two hours to get their buses to wherever they went. But what they wanted to do okay. is they wanted to build a, a public service, a civic space, open and accessible to everyone. Uh, and not only does it have the very best of materials, some of the highest quality design and craft personship, but for example, <clears throat> when the building originally opened, 1953, it had a 24-hour newsreel cinema in the basement. Um, keep in mind, this is a time when nobody really? in Ireland... Yeah, nobody had televisions back then. <laughs> it hurts. was to have a six-floor rooftop restaurant with beautiful mosaics and the most spectacular views of the Dublin Bay and the Dublin Mountains. Uh, it had a whole range of amenities. Originally, it was actually meant to have a crash, would you believe, uh, but it had a barber's, it had a cocktail bar, it had another restaurant. So, so the idea was unlike, say, the the shopping centres of today, which are kind of moments to uh, profit and the privatisation of public space, this was to be a fully open, accessible, public building. Uh, And the idea was to, to, uh, I suppose, uh, celebrate the dignity of everyday life, the fact that just regular people, your grandmother and my grandfather, travelling to Tipperary or Galway or Belfast or Derry, should have really good facilities and services. Um, It was a very brief moment, and Bosaris really crystallizes all of that. Um, Unfortunately, uh, uh, it it became quite unique, and it wasn't something that was replicated afterwards. But there's not only some really beautiful designs, some really beautiful ideas, but there's a philosophy underlying that building that's definitely something we should be returning to today.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. Um,
0: Is there anything, like, we've kind of gone through it a bit, but I suppose maybe to ask specifically, What is it about? What is it about that kind of like draws your attention, or like has drawn your attention, like over however long?
1: The interesting thing is, and I talk about this a bit in the book. Most of us Dubliners don't like the building, right? You know, if you ask (laughs) people about Busarus, either the only thing they know about it is that's where they get the bus, but also because it's a provincial bus service. You know, it's not a bus service within Dublin. In fact, many Dubliners are, are, are quite ambivalent to it, not having used it. But the general attitude of people is, oh, that ugly thing or or that dirty thing. That's (laughs) the way people think it. I was a bit like that for a long time. Mm. What what sparked my interest was um, a couple of years ago, I went to the open house architectural festivals tour of Bussaris. You get a bit of a tour. And actually, when you go inside the bits of the building that are no longer accessible to the public, that's in the Department of Social Protection's office block, and you get up to the sixth floor restaurant and out onto the balconies. You realize there's a lot more to the building than you thought before. Pat Scott was one of the young architects that, that worked in Michael Scott's team. Pat went on to be the country's leading international abstract uh, artist. He, he died a number of years ago but but you know a, a, an artist of global fame. Uh, a, a lot of the, the banisters and railings were designed by a guy called Hilary Heron. Uh, again uh, went on to become one of the country's leading sculptors. Uh, Robin Walker designed all of this bespoke kind of mid 20th century uh, uh, furniture he went on to be again one of the country's leading modernist architects so first of all there was a huge amount of talent operating in that building and actually it's very beautiful when, when you get a, a bit of time to see it and I'm strongly of the view that if if government and the agencies responsible for the building the Department of Social Protection and and restored, cleaned and and lit up that building at night in the way we do say with Kilmainham or the Customs House. People would take a different view of it. Likewise, like the 24 hour newsreel uh, was then transformed into a theatre called the Ablana Theatre. And that ran for decades. It only uh, closed its last performance in 1995. It's a 200 seat theatre. Uh, uh, under the basement of the bus station I think if people continue to have access to those kind of amenities in the building uh, so I think the tour sparked a bit of an interest and the more I read the more I realised from a historical point of view because there was a big political controversy uh, uh, midway through the building of it uh, which we could talk about in a second from a design and aesthetic point of view and also from a political and philosophical point of view it's an incredibly interesting building Hmm. and so it it, it harkens back to all that was really
2: good about uh <clears throat> Ireland and the city at that time then. And it's kind of, like you say, it's crystallized in 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 its design.
1: Yeah, although here's the interesting thing. So so the, the, the kind of the, the prime chapter of the book for me is is the chapter on the philosophy. And and I I start that chapter by standing on the south side of the keys, looking north. Um and I make the observation that you see three buildings. So to the left you see the customs house, uh designed by James Gandon, the kind of the the, the, the uh, kind of jewel in the crown of 18th century uh, uh, Georgian architecture, but it's a building of empire. It was literally where uh, the customs for the importation of, of various goods and products uh, were levied, um, and it it represented the kind of mercantile economy of, of Ireland as part of the British Empire. You look at the right-hand side and you see the Irish Financial Services Centre, uh, uh, that development of Charles High and at Dermot Desmond. And, you know, it's a building of another kind of empire, the, the empire of neoliberalism and financialized capitalism and, and the kind of globalized, uh, liberalized Ireland of the 90s and noughties. And then tucked in behind those two, <clears throat> you have this very u- unique building. And in fact, it's not that Bussaras represents what was going on in Dublin at the time it was quite unique for its time so it's almost like the roads that we never traveled that for a brief moment we could have done uh, but we didn't and that's why I think uh, uh, today uh, because we're at a bit of a crossroads ourselves looking back at that building and what it represented and what it tried to achieve might give us some pointers as to where we may go as a country into the future.
0: So even though it's a bit like it's building with a lot of like history, it's Building with quite a bit of interesting history. I didn't know any of this. And you also feel like it represents a potential or maybe past, maybe like future that we've kind of missed out on in a way, but like maybe that we can still avail of. Sorry if that's phrased a bit strangely.
1: No, no, it, it's a... And, and look, the point isn't to go back to that design style. That design style is mid 20th century modernism. It, it is a, a style of its time. Uh, and I'm not one for architectural nostalgia where you kind of try and recreate those things. Our buildings are the future. <laughs> Uh, uh, have to to evolve, particularly in light of the challenge of climate change and the need to tackle the the embedded carbon emissions in in new buildings. But I do think the philosophy underlying it, which is a very civic Republican philosophy, the idea that the state should provide good quality public services and public realm for the people, it's very egalitarian. Uh, uh, Those services should be for everybody, irrespective of means. And it's very popular, uh, uh, the idea that these this is for the people i think those are values that uh, we would do well to 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 return to and, and and i speculate a little bit at the end of the book to say you know if if michael scott or or a, 21st century Michael or Michelle Scott were uh, uh, developing that facility today, what would they be doing? And of course, it would be the most environmentally sustainable building of its time because Bosaris used the most advanced technologies in terms of building, in terms of heating, in terms of uh, 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 um, cleaning uh, for its time. It was really advanced technologically. So a, a new bussaurus would do the same i I speculate that it would have a a small uh, urban woodland on the roof uh, as a carbon sink Uh, i speculate that it would have the most sustainable uh, uh, um, uh, passive uh, energy system uh, that it would wouldn't use steel and and Mm -hmm. and glass to the same extent because of the embedded carbon but the most um, uh, up-to-date sustainable building materials but crucially it would be public, it would be open, it would be accessible, um, uh, and it would be a building for everybody in the same sense. So I think that's the kind of the thing that I think we need to recapture today. Too much of the public space in our cities has been privatised, um, uh, and you have to pay in, or it's not accessible to everybody. Yeah. Uh, we need to return to that idea yeah. of the public realm is for the public. Yeah, uh, what,
2: what was it exactly that caused all of these public amenities to die out, the ones that were originally in... Uh, Bosaris, because I know you mentioned that the, uh, the theatre closed in 1995, but you said there was also uh, like a restaurant and a barber
1: shop and things like that. So some of them never opened. So there was a battle um, um, at the time Bosaris was being built. Finifall were in government when the planning permission was granted. Construction started, but there was a change of government in 1948 and the first coalition government involving uh, Fine Gael, um, and other parties came into office. And they didn't like the project because they thought it was a, a vanity project for Fianna Fáil. Construction stopped for three years where they were trying to decide what to do with it. Fianna Fáil then won the election in 51, uh, and the compromise solution was that the Department of Social Welfare, newly created, would look after the office blocks and bus Aaron uh, would have the bus station. So that actually meant that the sixth floor restaurant and the, the uh, balconies and the beautiful mosaics up there uh, were lost to the public. That became the canteen for the civil servants, the Department of Social Protection. Uh, there was also battles between the Secretary General uh, of the then Department, Donna Donovan, and Michael Scott over the final finishing. So some of the services, like the barbers, etc., were never realised, nor was the crash. But the newsreel cinema opened. It then transferred into a, a theatre, but that fell foul, unfortunately, of of the, the kind of the excesses, in my view, of the Celtic Tiger era. But I also think the people who were responsible, both for the Department of Bus Aaron, and didn't, you know, as we went to the seventies, eighties, and nineties didn't uh, uh, continue with that core mission uh, of, of a high quality public service uh, with a range of amenities for everybody in the public, and therefore it just got lost. But you also need to understand that what happens in the particularly the end of the 80s, but the 90s and noughties is increasingly government agencies are being forced to try and monetize every little bit of public space they have. How can you get money out of these things? You know, we see it in car parks, in, in hospitals and vending machines and schools. Uh, and of course... and The rake of hotels that are now being built all over Dublin. Yeah. You know, everything, everything is about, you know, h- how can you squeeze as much cash out of it? Um, and that is completely mm. to, to the, the kind of a- antithesis of what good quality public service, public realm should be. And mm. you know, I think, for example, about the continued failed plans to develop a writer's quarter in and around Parnell Square. Uh, Dublin City Council has wonderful plans to transform that into a writer's quarter. Uh, but uh, it, it's solely reliant on private investment. We want to monetize and squeeze profit out of it, and for that reason, it's never happened. Uh, thankfully, most of our galleries are still free. But but you know, public space um, is is you know is increasingly under pressure um, uh, uh, by by kind of financial capital and, and investment. And you're right, you know, whether it's hotels, whether it's you know t- t- today, for example, in Dublin, there's another protest around the cobblestone. You know, because that beautiful and wonderful mm. cultural venue of ours in the city is 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 under threat. Um, so I think you know that's why I'm saying today our city is at a crossroads. Frank Macdonald, the wonderful former environmental correspondent for the Irish Times, has a great book out uh, called A Little History of the Future of Dublin, where he charts Dublin's history, and he's really kind of uh, uh, highlighting and sounding an alarm bell for where our city is going and I think there's a growing movement of people Um, and I think the Bosaris book just kind of nicely coincidentally chimes with all of this we're saying no Dublin has to be for people in Dublin not just us Dubliners but the people who come here to live to work to visit and we have to make sure the city is open accessible uh, and enjoyable by all, um, uh, rather than, you know, somewhere where uh, highly skilled tech workers from Google or, you know, uh, 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 very, very affluent tourists uh, 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 enjoy. Yes, there has to be space for those people, but there has to be space for everybody else as well.
2: Yeah, so it, it's this balancing act think you think. But then as well, if we were to do this uh, and create a space which is accessible for everyone, no matter what their means. What are what do you think are like the key uh, things from the building of Bosaris that you would implement? Like if they said, oh, and you know what, we're going to put you in charge. You know what you're doing. What do you think would be the key factors from Bosaris to put to implement in this new plan?
1: Yeah, so I mean, if, if if I was in charge of of the two buildings because they're essentially two buildings connected, um, and if I was overseeing the redevelopment of them, it would be opening the buildings up to the maximum number of people uh, for the maximum amount of time. So look, obviously the Department of Social Protections canteen is for their staff, but but you know that could be opened up as a pop up restaurant or a venue over the weekends. You could have far more tours. You would restore the Ablana Theatre downstairs and turn it into a theatre and a community arts resource. Uh, uh, you would uh, uh, ensure that the public was fully aware of all of the wonderful craftspersonship, the materials, and, and the beautiful mosaics that are throughout the building. Uh, you'd also have to upgrade it to make sure it's fully disability accessible which it currently isn't uh, and uh, you would replace the cutting edge technology from the 1940s and 50s it's now defunct with the latest cutting edge technology in terms of of energy efficiency and, and carbon neutrality so for me it, it really is about just up, updating the original vision but but for me it's it's not so much about what we do with BOSARIS, right because that that's there <clears throat> it's more what we do with everything else so for example mm. Across the road from there, there's the Poolbeg Strategic Development Zone, a very, very large uh, a piece of land on the edge of the city and the, and the coast. That's going to be the kind of single largest residential and commercial and retail development the city has seen since the docklands. And unfortunately, uh, that is going to be developed Uh, by the Johnny Ronan group (coughs) in that same kind of hyper uh, uh, neoliberal uh, model of residential commercial development. And while there will be some nice public space and there will be some nice public realm, that's not going to be the primary product there. Um, uh, And that means we're going to have uh, uh, inflated rental prices for built-to-rent apartments. Uh, It means we're going to have primarily a kind of a profit. I think we need to have the rental unit. People are going to charge for those.
0: Oh, sorry to put across you, Owen, but I think you kind of um, cut out a bit there. All right, so,
1: so what I'm saying is I'm not saying that, that you know you you, you can't have a, 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 a level of profit-taking by private property owners, but there needs to be a balance uh, and the public interest and the public yeah. realm has to be given far greater space than it is. So for me, the issue around <clears throat> the lessons for is to start applying them elsewhere in our city so that we can have good quality affordable homes, that we can have good quality cultural uh, spaces for artists and musicians and those of us that enjoy those kind of things but also just open public space in the, 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 the only recent park that's been produced in Dublin to my knowledge is a wonderful but very very small park called Weaver's Court Park in, in off Cork Street whereas you look at Stephens Green Right Now, initially, that wasn't public. Um, uh, but we need to get back to the idea of producing really good quality public spaces for people to enjoy. And that can be simply uh, as simple as good quality public architecture, good quality public uh, 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 parks, and other open free public amenities.
2: Yeah. And so it, in it,
0: way, I, bus building. Sorry. Roger.
2: No, I just... I, and it's really depressing to see because whatever is built just... First of all, it's not appealing on an aesthetic level. And then second of all, when you consider uh, like how it's made in terms of embedded carbon and they're just like these giant, I think that's the bane of modern architecture is this push towards minimalism and neoliberal um, architecture where everything needs to be these big blocks of concrete. And yeah, they look nice sometimes, but you know, at what cost?
1: Yeah, although there, there are also uh, um, optimistic signs that that things are changing. So, in Dublin, for example, some of the new social housing that's been built has been built to really, really high passive house standards. I mean, they, two architects, have done some wonderful stuff out with Dunleary Rathdown County Council. Likewise, we, we, we've developed some really beautiful public buildings in recent years. The Carlo Arts Centre is a really good example, or the Museum of Antiquities in, in Waterford City Centre. Really groundbreaking, innovative buildings, but also open to the public. Um, what I think we need to do is do more of that um, uh, and do more of that by, I think, giving younger architects an opportunity to express themselves. I mean, today, for example, if you want, as an architect, to get a public contract, you have to have a level of experience and skill that really excludes most young architects. Whereas if you look at some of the great architects of, of the 20th century, some of those architects won their awards that made their name in architectural competitions where they never built anything before in their lives. Uh, and what you hear from young architects emerging is, is if we want to have more experimentation, if we want to have you know, more, more creativity, <clears throat> we have to you know, r- remove some of the bureaucracy in these things. And I'm strongly of the view, whatever about what the private sector builds, and that will be thankfully constrained by by city and county development plans and planning rules where we're spending taxpayers' money where it's public building, schools, public housing libraries, uh, uh, galleries and, and whatnot Uh, Then we need to be building the very best quality of buildings, not only for the people using them or living in them, uh, but to make our public realm genuinely exciting for both those of us who live in the cities uh, and those people who who come to work and and visit. So I do think government and state agencies could be much, much more ambitious and creative. And a lot of that is accessing the emerging talent that's there because we have incredible talent, not just in architecture, but in so many areas of of, uh, uh, cultural practice. We just need to support it more.
2: Yeah, and I think this it's really been demonstrated with the lack of proper funding and roadmap for people in the creative sector, especially with the the pandemic, how there is nothing for them. There's no, and I know it's a bit trite, you know, when you look at the sign in front of the academy and it says no roadmap, no plan, but, you know, it just shows how bleak it is. And then coupled with the fact that they can't, get into uh, fields like architecture because of, of of gatekeeping you know like they're, <clears throat> they're going to go elsewhere
1: yeah and unfortunately that's what's happening i mean you, you even see that in in music you know there's there's a whole um, um, explosion of really wonderful kind of urban rap music in, in Dublin in the last couple of years folks like Jemmy Dunleavy and Mango and Mathman and Finch and Kojak for example Kojak because he couldn't get affordable accommodation in Dublin had to move to London the idea that London is a more hospitable climate for, for young artists in Dublin it says it all Um, uh, and although London isn't without its problems either, it's a very similar uh, set of dynamics. Uh, That just shows you that if if we can't keep our emerging cultural talent here, that doesn't bode well for the future of the city. Uh, And likewise, you can see in terms of, uh, there's a range of struggles that are going on in the city at the moment. I mentioned the cobblestone, but you know, you've Merchants Arch down in Temple Bar. You have the Moore Street Battlefield site uh, 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 off O'Connell Street. You know, there's a range of things where, commercial interest, financial interest, and 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 the, the desire to monetize every little square meter of space that we have in, in our capital is squeezing out everything else. And I think we've got the balance absolutely all wrong. Uh, but again, the, the good sign is and Frank McDonald in his book that I just mentioned at the end of it he reflects on on a protest he was at recently for the cobblestone and, and they expected it would just be a few people and it was huge. Uh, and I would expect something similar Uh, at the cobblestone protest today. Tomorrow there's a protest in Dublin uh, uh, on Saturday around uh, uh, the Hammersons' plan for for more streets, which is an absolutely appalling proposition. So I do think there's a coming together of all of those groups of people for whom Dublin should be uh, an incubator, but for whom it's actually a very cold house to say, actually, you know what, we want to try and reclaim but the present and the future of the city, and I think the more that happens, the more people get actively involved in in reclaiming civic space and uh, trying to direct government policy. The, the healthier the future of the city will be. Yeah. So yeah.
0: So, the 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 city. A city should be for people should be able to live in it as well as well as like you know come visit it.
1: Yeah. And, you know, there's some interesting examples. Like if you look what uh, Mayor Dalgo is doing in Paris, it's very, very interesting. They produce more public housing than than, uh, at any other time, I understand, in uh, post-war Parisian history. Uh, They've started to transform the streets of Paris, not just in terms of greater cycling and, and walking, but greater greenery. Uh, and there really is an attempt to, to turn the city in a completely different direction. Uh, and of course, it's electorally very popular. So that shows you can embrace all of those agendas and you can win elections too. You know, Ken Livingstone very successfully during his time as mayor uh, is mayor in, in London did the same. You know, His first act was to dramatically increase the number of buses and dramatically cut the prices. And the idea was to encourage people to be able to access low cost, high quality public transport. Which is good for them but also good for for the uh, uh, overall emissions levels in the city you know and there are lots of other examples in different uh, uh, global cities about how citizens movements political parties directly elected mayors are trying to make cities better places one of our problems in dublin is we don't have a directly elected mayor our, our system of local government is incredibly uh, uh, disempowered and centralized uh, in terms of decision making with central government and also very fragmented. Uh, I read recently there's almost 40 different agencies in Dublin that have some involvement in transportation policy, um, uh, and you know that's why you know a really good idea, the pedestrianisation of College Green, you know, so we would have a wonderful pedestrianised plaza, uh, uh, has continued to fall foul of, of our planning system because our public agencies, the council, uh, Dublin Bus, the National Transport Authority, and others simply can't agree on what's the best plan for that. Um, so, you know, w- we had an interesting exchange in the Oireachtas uh, Housing and Planning Committee this week, where we looked at what's called transport orientated development, properly integrating your public transport and active mobility infrastructure into your overall urban regeneration, uh, and one of the conclusions of all of the experts, we had a bunch of experts in educating us as politicians, was where you have strong directly elected mayors who have a strong vision for the future of the city, um, they can achieve much more of these kind of changes. But it can't be top down. It also has to be bottom up, grassroots led, uh, of various sections mm. of society and civic interests, mobilising a campaign to make the city a better place for everyone.
2: So, do you think it starts at, has to start at the city level for any kind of greater improvement to happen?
1: Yeah, I, I do think the problem is, is you know, if you look at our local government system at the minute, our councillors, and I've been a local government councillor both in Dublin and in Belfast, but here in the south, uh, our councillors have very, very limited powers um, uh, and therefore their ability to shape the city is quite limited. But even the executive of the council, the chief executive and the directors of the service, they, they control very little. Um, uh, far too much power is vested in central government departments, particularly transport and, and housing. But also in a, a plethora of state agencies. I mean, the National Transport Agency is one, but it's not the only one. So that means trying to coordinate anything, you know, is 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 uh, exceptionally difficult. So I certainly think in Dublin, it's not that we have to wait till we have stronger uh, uh, local government with directly elected mayors. I think there's lots of improvements you can make now, and there's lots of good struggles going on now. Mm. But I do think the sooner we move towards a directly elected mayor, the better. There was uh, three plebiscites in, in Limerick and Cork and Waterford a couple of years ago to see if they wanted directly elected mayors. Only Limerick voted for it and the legislation is currently being drafted. So Limerick actually will get a directly elected mayor before the rest of the state. Okay. And it's really important that in the legislation that leads to that directly elected mayor, that we give the mayor uh, and the elected councillors real power. Um, and then they can demonstrate Uh, what they can do for their city, because that's going to be the kind of trial run for everywhere else. But Dublin is probably the only city of its size in Europe that doesn't have a directly elected mayor um, or or strong local and regional government. And the problem is, how would I like to see our capital developed? The cities I'm interested in are the Berlins, the Copenhagens, the Amsterdams, mid-sized cities with beautiful historic cores, Uh, that are kind of mid-rise, mixed-use, high-density, livable cities, places where people really want to be, both to live and to visit. You know, we're not Singapore, we're not New York, we're not London, we shouldn't cut ourselves. We're a a global city on that level. But in fact, in many respects, those mid-size European capitals often actually have a higher quality of living and are more egalitarian. And I think that's the model we should aspire to. While, again, to to refer back to Frank MacDonald, respecting the historic fabric of our city. You know, we're a, we're a Georgian city in the main. Uh, and there's an intimacy about about the, the, the built environment and this grain of the city. Uh, as, and that reflects in, in our culture and our attitude and our way of, of dealing with each other. And I think we need to build on that. Uh, and I think we could do that really successfully with the right kinds of vision policies and, and institutional supports.
2: Yeah. What do you think the end point is if we don't, like implement this because we see all these things happening. And especially how, you know, you referred to Frank McDonald and talking about respecting the historic core. And that's really, Dublin's historic core is just getting abused. Uh, um, like people aren't taking it lying down, obviously, but I'm thinking especially of the Wood Quay area with the, you know, fantastic biking uh, ship site on it. And then they just completely paved it over. Like, what is the end point? If you're going to make the city that no one wants to live in well, like, it's, it's, I, I don't it's no, understand
1: it, it's not that nobody wants to live in it it's nobody can afford to live in it. that's the problem i mean yeah. the, the, sure. the, the real battlefield these days is actually the liberties right because kind of wood key is done and that was done in the in the 80s and 90s but if you look at the liberties um and you know the very name the liberties was it was just outside the city walls it was where you had uh, 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 you know kind of free trades free crafts a certain degree of, of openness. And it then became host to, to very, very large inner city working class communities. What's now happening there is instead of encouraging it as a cultural quarter for young emerging cultural practitioners of various kinds, you know, if they are college there, et cetera, as well as ensuring that it's a genuinely affordable place for the working class communities uh, that are, are, you know, developing there. Every square meter of land is being sold off at high prices for co-living, for apart hotels, um, uh, and for various other kinds of developments, and you know, there has been enormous pressure on that small area. And what's the consequence? Uh, young working-class people growing up in the existing public housing estates there can't afford to stay, and they're being pushed ever further out uh, towards hmm. uh, the 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 uh, outer you outer city core, if you like, of the suburbs or the new suburbs. But also the young emerging cultural practitioners and uh, and you know people who might want to have small kind of uh, creative businesses, they can't afford to, to remain there either. So what will you get? Well, you'll get this place where, you know, Frankie, again, I, I know I keep quoting Frank, but where, where people will come to Dublin and the only thing they'll see is other hotels um, or, or very kind of kitsch manufactured products, you know, like the Hard Rock Cafe or, 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 or some of this kind of stuff. Um, so the problem is that's where we're going. And that's why I think um, we need to to go back to some of those values of the which is about, you know, that civic Republican idea of the city for the citizens, the city for the people, the city for the residents, that it is public and crucially, that it's accessible and and available for all. Um, And and I think they're the two choices. And I think we might be at a tipping point, um, um, but a lot of that depends on us, on on the people who live here and whether or not we get off, off our backsides and and demand and campaign and protest and crucially vote mm. uh, uh, for the kinds of changes our city needs. And look, we're, we're talking a lot about Dublin, um, but but these are conversations and, and discussions that have been ha- ha- that are happening in our other cities. But there are also conversations that are happening in different ways in our our, our smaller towns and villages because they're also struggling in many ways. Um, uh, and and we need to remember that uh, the good people of Longford and Athlone and Buncrana and, Bunkrana and uh, uh, Waterford and you know Sligo and Cork and, and the rest of them, uh, not to mention Belfast and Derry, you know, also have their discussions and debates and they need to be taken into account as well. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Sorry, go ahead there, Ellie.
0: Oh, sorry. Yeah, no, I was just saying that like, in a way, just like the Bussaris building, does that kind of represent some of the values of what you're
1: saying in some ways? Oh, right? absolutely. I <clears throat> I think it it, it is to, to, to pick up a phrase of Nigel's, which I use in the book, it was a moment in in the history of our city and the history of public service development uh, and state intervention that crystallizes all of those values. And therefore, and again, I didn't realize this when I started writing the book. I just thought it was an interesting story. It was only as I learned more and considered the matter more. But those are absolutely values that that we need to return to. And look, let's also not be precious about it. But We, we shouldn't see the historic core of Dublin uh, or, or the South Georgian Quarter, for example, at the back end of Leinster House as some kind of thing that has to be preserved and, and not touched like a relic. You know, if you walk around Brussels, for example, um, they have wonderful ways of preserving the historic fabric of their, of their older buildings, but also allowing little modern flourishes um, um, <clears throat> as well. And, and therefore, like, I, 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 I'm a strong advocate of protecting our Georgian architecture But we shouldn't be constrained by it. You know, there's no reason why in in those parts of the building you can't have modern buildings or modern extensions and additions to existing Georgian architecture that don't push the boundaries out. Um, But I think it has to be done in a thoughtful and considered way. And again, this goes back to Bussaris. Bussaris was the first major inner urban modernist building in the history of the city. It's right beside Gandon's Mansion House, which, as I said, our Customs House, which was the jewel in the crown of 18th century architecture. And yet one of the things that Michael Scott, the architect did was he used the same stone as is in the custom house, Portland stone in the two main gables. So even though it's a completely different architectural style, it couldn't be more different. It, it reflected some of the values and the aesthetics of the custom house. Likewise, there's a lot of bronze and copper that's used in uh, the customs house, and that's reflected in the use of bronze and copper in, in uh, uh, Bussaris. So we don't have to be restricted by the past, but we have to be mindful of it and pay it its respect while always looking to the future. And that's you know, the really nice thing about Scott's architecture is he valued... Irish cultural traditions, uh, Irish traditional materials and crafts, but he was never afraid to experiment um, with new ideas, new styles, new technologies. As as a small aside, if you've ever used Bussaris, you know it has that wonderful wavy canopy, uh, um, um, you know, as you come out of the the bus uh, concourse and onto the buses. That was developed by Ove Aramis engineering consultancy in London. Uh, That was the first time that concrete technology was ever used. And the learning that Ove Arup made from that allowed him to go off to uh, uh, um, Australia um, to do the Sydney Opera House and to further develop that technology. You wouldn't have had the Sydney Opera House if Michael Scott hadn't have had the foresight to bring Ove Arup over to Busaris. And the really interesting thing is that, no technology, developed, yeah, and that technology was developed, not for some fancy reason. They had a real challenge, which is they wanted to make sure that as the passengers walked out of the bus station onto the buses they didn't get wet in the rain. But if you were to have a flat, kind of concrete protruding structure, it would be too heavy and it would collapse. So they got Ove to work out, how could you have such a structure that carried its own weight, and the corrugated uh, uh, design of of that canopy um, carries its own weight. So it was very functional to make sure your granddad and grandmother didn't get wet getting out of the bus. It was incredibly innovative, uh, uh, brand new technology. And it's also one of the design features of the building, one of the nicest parts of it. And that really encapsulates why that building is so important. And again, it's not that we should have concrete canopies everywhere. It's that idea of innovation, but innovation to serve the public good, keeping people dry while they're trying to get on the bus. I can't think of any better reason to to advance technology in building uh, than to make people more comfortable.
0: Just to kind of quickly time out... Um... Oh, and I'm aware you're under, um, time pressure, um, sure. well, I, I'm happy to finish this up now, like, um, unless, Nigel, do you have any extra questions?
2: Um, I just, I, w- I was kind of curious, you mentioned earlier on that there was, like, a scandal or controversy in there? the history of Bazarus. Um, hmm? No, sorry, go ahead. Hello?
0: No, sorry, yeah, go, yeah, ahead, gonna... go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, you mentioned earlier on that there was a scandal or controversy in the, the original building of Basara's that kind of factored into how it was built. I was wondering what that was, just if you could.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, th- th- in fact, there was multiple controversies. So there was a controversy, first of all, of the selection of the site. Uh, CIE wanted it down by um, Con- Connolly Station or, or Amiens Street Station, as it was known at the time um uh, uh, there was another group of people who wanted it by um smithfield another group of people who wanted Aston key so there was battles over the site first of all there were then huge battles over the design the irish times uh, uh, architectural correspondent um uh, once the design was approved by the the the, 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 the corporation at the time uh, published this graphic uh, display on its front page which was a huge misrepresentation of the building and in fact, Michael Scott took them to court and and uh, uh, for defamation and won, uh, and they had to pay compensation, put in an apology in the paper, but also to destroy uh, the plates that were used to print that misrepresentation. And then you had the controversy after the fall of the Finucane government in '48, uh, and literally building work stopped for three years uh, because Miguel didn't want to continue with what they believed was a Finucane vanity project. <clears throat> um, so it, it, it was marred in controversy all the way through. Not unlike the children's hospital for example in Dublin at the moment. Although what was really interesting is, unlike the Children's Hospital, where there's been very, very little discussion of the design of it. In fact, a lot of the the public conversation about Bosaris, in the letters, pages of newspapers, etc., was all about the design. And in in part, that's because public architecture mattered back then. This was the early years of the new free state. Uh, Politicians wanted to ensure that public projects said something about the way in which the state saw itself. The public took great pride in these things. I mean, Kieran O'Connor, who's the uh, head of the Office of Public Works, uh, the state's chief state architect at the moment, he remembers being brought by his mom both there and to another very important modernist building, the Collinson Airport, first airport in the city. Uh, and there was a working class woman, big Fenafo supporter, taking great pride in these funny looking buildings, as she called them. But they were they were they were you know. Our buildings and our modern, forward-looking, outward-looking kind of face uh, uh, of this new free state. And again, I think that's important because, you know, too often architecture is the preserve of, of architects and the very difficult language that they often use in their discourse. Public architecture is exactly that. It's public. It's built with public money. And therefore, I think the public... Uh, needs to reclaim that and say well actually what do we want this to to, to look like how do we want our cities and uh, our urban fabric uh, uh, to to be like because ultimately we live in these cities and these towns uh, this yeah. stuff surrounds us and you know we need to demystify some of this stuff and uh, go back to an era where public architecture mattered to everybody and everybody was entitled to have an opinion on it not just the the aesthetic experts of architectural criticism or the architects themselves Your grandmother's opinion of these buildings is just as important uh, uh, as the chief architect of the Office of Public Works or the architectural critic of the Irish Times. Yeah.
0: Um, I feel like that's a good place to wrap it up, unless you have anything else?
1: No, no, that's great.
0: Um, Okay. um, Where can we find you? Is there anything you want to plug, anything you want to talk, like share?
1: But just I mean, just to say the book, The Dignity of Everyday Life um, on, on Bosaris is published. It's not just a book of, of words. It's a book of over 200 photographs by a wonderful photographer, Mal McCann. Uh, and it's an all good bookshop, so you can buy it from Marion Press directly. Uh, and then again, just to plug the other book I published last year, Defects Living with the Legacy of the Celtic Tiger, which looks at a, a much, much less uh, uh, optimistic story of of people living in defective buildings and what we need to do to ensure... Uh, as we start to dramatically expand new residential construction in the state again, we don't repeat the mistakes of the past. So uh, uh, people should check out those and and keep an eye on my Twitter, Facebook or Instagram page if you're of uh, a mind to do so for, for future developments.
0: Okay, uh, Nigel, where can we find you?
2: Uh, you can find me mainly on Twitter, at Spicy Nigel, where uh, recently I've been tweeting things from my... Uh, tr- I've been recently been tweeting about my... Uh, trip to romania which i'm just finishing up on and also uh nfts and how they're bad
0: (laughs) agreed Hyperfixations does not support nfts um and you can find me on twitter at AliCat underscore Ali spelled like alleyway cat spelled with a k and you can find me on instagram at ali a-l-l-y underscore k underscore P. um you can find the podcast at hyperfixations p on twitter
2: or at Hyperfixations Pod on Instagram. Rate and review us wherever you get your podcast. be it at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or in a Lucky Dip machine, wherever. If you w- want to come onto the show to discuss one of your hyperfixations, please feel free to reach out at any of the aforementioned social media.
0: And that's all for this week. Owen, pleasure having you on. Um, and goodbye for now. Um, sorry again. Hey, delay. No problem. Good to chat. Have a good Rest weekend. In, um, ourselves. Same to you. Take care. Bye. Signing off.